put your best foot forward is an English phrase. Its first use dates back to the year 1613. Put your best foot forward. It means to embark on a journey or a task with purpose, with gusto. Well, Jesus here is headed to the cross. And in John chapters 12 and 13, he puts his best foot forward. He heads to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. And it's interesting that our chapters tonight start and finish with feet. They begin when a woman anoints Jesus' feet with an expensive perfume. They end with Jesus taking a bowl and a towel to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus is about to save the world, and he puts his best foot forward. Verse 1. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead whom he had raised from the dead. And what a joyous reunion that had to have been. Imagine the conversation between Jesus and Lazarus. There there they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard. Spikenard was a perfumed oil imported from India. And it was super expensive, worth a year's wages. This vial of oil may have constituted Mary's life savings. Well, she took the oil and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. So has the year since. We're still smelling that fragrant oil even tonight. Jesus has brought her brother back from the dead. And now no cost is too extravagant to show Jesus how much she adores him. Mary breaks the vial. She anoints the feet of Jesus and she pours out her love for him. And nowhere in Scripture do we find an act that better epitomizes true worship than right here. No one required Mary to pour out her expensive oil. And worship is always born out of love, not legalism. Delight, not duty. True worship is not so much ritualistic or religious as it is romantic. It flows from our hearts. Mary's expression was the overflow of an exuberant heart. Then one of his disciples, there's always a party pooper in every crowd. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then John adds the caveat. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Judas's noble-sounding concern was a smokescreen. He wasn't worried about the poor. He was worried about his own purse. Jesus had made Judas the treasurer of the Jesus Christ Evangelistic Association. And it's a good thing Judas never got audited. It would have been a scandal, for he had been skimming off the top. Judas was pilfering, but his excuse was pragmatism. In essence, Judas is saying, hey, what about the enormous needs in the world? Let's be practical here. There are missions and soup kitchens and homes for unwed mothers and political action committees that desperately need our support. Why waste this money on worship? But understand, understand, worship is not as practical as it is spiritual. See, worship is not designed to satisfy or benefit human beings as if there's always a utilitarian purpose behind it. No, worship is an attempt to bless the heart of God. It finds its value in putting a smile on God's face, lighting up God's heart. This is why worship is unselfish and non-utilitarian and relational. See, worship is like buying a dozen roses for your wife. That's what it's like. Practically speaking, a dozen roses are a complete waste. 
They bloom a few days and then just shrivel up. They serve no function whatsoever. Oh, but relationally, those flowers are a valuable gesture to the person you love. And in that regard, they're worth every single penny you pay for them. Flowers are only appreciated by lovers, and so it is with worship. Obviously, Judas was not a lover of God. His name, Judas, it means praise, but Judas knew nothing of real praise and worship. If he had, he would have never objected to Mary's extravagance. Verse 7 tells us, but Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Worship is important to the heart of God. Perfumes were placed on deteriorating corpses to mask the odor. When they died, it was a part of the ritual of preparing them for burial. But Mary believed that the body of Jesus would not rot. Mary believed in the resurrection that Jesus had foretold. And so she anointed him before his burial right here. You know, it's interesting, we'll find later that Mary of Bethany was not among the women who came to the tomb on Easter Sunday. And do you know why? She'd already anointed Jesus. She did it here. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they may also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. This Lazarus had become quite a celebrity. You don't, you don't, every day you don't meet somebody who's been was dead a few days later, earlier, you know. He was quite the celebrity now. And people wanted to meet him. They wanted to talk to him. You know, when you look closely at these three family members, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, you actually find the three ingredients for Christian discipleship. Martha, you remember, was known for her work. She was busy running around and preparing and serving the Lord. Mary was famous for her worship, as we've just seen. And Lazarus was the ultimate witness of the resurrection power of Jesus. And isn't it interesting? These are the three ingredients for Christian discipleship. These should be our priorities, work and worship and witness. Verse 10 uncovers the scheme. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Lazarus was such an impressive witness for Jesus that he was on the priestly hit list. I don't know why the Jews weren't afraid to kill Lazarus. If they had, Jesus might have resurrected him a second time. That would have cooked their goose. Remember the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man and a beggar? Remember that beggar's name? His name was Lazarus. Not the same guy, but a, but a different Lazarus. The rich man died and went to hell. The beggar went to paradise. The rich man asked Abraham to send Lazarus back to earth and let him witness to his brothers. Lest they also come to the place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But the rich guy persisted. He said, no, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Note Abraham's reply. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And how ironic. A man named Lazarus does rise from the dead. And Abraham was right, wasn't he? Rather than listen to him, the Jews try to kill Lazarus. Verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast. Now, during the Passover, the city of Jerusalem was swarming with visitors. The permanent population of about 80,000 people would swell to a quarter of a million. When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, which meant save now. It was a political statement. It was a cry of liberation from Rome. Palm branches were symbols of Israel. They spoke of Jewish nationalism and independence. The Jews that that turned out that day to witness Jesus entering the city, they turned it into a political rally. They wanted salvation from Roman rule more so than freedom from sin and selfishness. 
And they shouted, Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They got it right. It was a Messianic psalm, and Jesus was the Messiah. Yet they thought their Messiah would be a political deliverer. Jesus came to be a spiritual Savior. Well, then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written. And John quotes Zechariah 9, verse 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The prophet had predicted that Messiah would come into Jerusalem riding on a burrow. Jesus' triumphant entry, by the way, was predicted by a host of Old Testament prophets. Daniel 9 pinpointed its exact date, 500 years in advance. You know, usually Jesus steered away from the public spotlight, but not here. His entrance into Jerusalem was the only public demonstration that Jesus ever orchestrated. And he did so to fulfill Scripture. Well, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him. And that they had done these things to him. In other words, the significance of these events dawned on them later, after his resurrection. Well, therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Apparently, the resurrection of Lazarus just a few days earlier had fueled these large crowds. It had fueled this enormous reception that the people were giving to Jesus. It was quite impressive. A man who was dead for four days had been resurrected. Lazarus was quite a witness to the resurrection power of Jesus. Well, verse 20 tells us, Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, it's interesting. Philip is the only one of the 12 disciples who had a Greek name. Thus, these Greeks choose Philip for an interview with Jesus. They approach Philip. I guess they figured that he would be more sympathetic to them. Well, Philip came and he told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Now, we're not told if Jesus ever spoke to these Greeks personally. Only what he told Andrew and Philip in response to their request to see him. But Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Let me repeat. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Have you ever heard the expression, 15 minutes of fame? At some point, everybody gets their 15 minutes of fame. A brief time in the spotlight, in essence. On August the 19th, 1951, a three-foot, seven-inch midget named Eddie Goodell had his 15 minutes of fame. The St. Louis Browns were playing baseball against the Detroit Tigers. Eddie Goodell, uniform number one-eighth. Bit of humor there. He came out of the dugout to pinch hit for the Browns. It was a publicity stunt. His strike zone was a mere 18 inches. And so needless to say, he walked on four pitches. After the incident, the American League immediately barred midgets from baseball. Yet Eddie Goodell's 15 minutes of fame earned him a place in baseball lore. And here, Jesus announces that his moment of glory has finally come. It sounds strange to think it, to think of Jesus having a single moment of glory. In essence, his own 15 minutes in the spotlight. When you think about it, Jesus' whole lifetime was filled with glory. What about on the mountaintop? where he was transfigured in the bright light of his heavenly splendor. You would think the life of Jesus was glorious from start to finish. And yet Jesus says here, the hour has come 
that the Son of Man should be glorified. My moment of glory has finally arrived. And what monumental event would this include? A few lightning bolts? Some serious thunderclaps? How about a wooden cross? Jesus' crucifixion was his glorification. You see, the cross was the culmination of his coming. The cross was the ultimate act of his obedience. The cross was the brightest display of his character. The cross was the greatest example of his love. And the cross was the most tremendous fulfillment of his, of his divine will. And all this, all this glory was unleashed and put on display during six hours at the cross. It's ironic, but Jesus' crucifixion was his glorification. Well, verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It produces much grain. Plant a kernel of wheat and the moisture in the soil. It softens up the shell. It releases the seeds. The seeds germinate. They sprout. They grow toward the sunshine. And here's the point of it all. The mystery of life involves death. For when that kernel of wheat dies to being a kernel, it's only then that it becomes a harvest of wheat. And likewise, when, a, when we die, to our selfish ways. It's then that we can begin to bless others. And nowhere is this principle of life from death more evident than at the cross of Jesus. For it's the Lord's death that has spawned life for millions. Jesus is the single grain that falls to the ground and dies and yet has produced a global harvest. And this principle of life and death applies to us. For he says in the next verse, He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Real living doesn't start until we first die to our own selfishness. Verse 26, if anyone serves him, let him follow me. And where I am, there may my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus was putting his best foot forward. And it was not a reluctant, hesitant foot forward. Understand, Jesus was born to die. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The magi, I remember, gave him myrrh, a burial spice, at his baby shower. His journey led to the foot of the cross. He's not about to cop out now. But for this purpose, I came to this hour, he says. He says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Imagine at that moment, an audible voice of God was heard. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus didn't have to hear this voice from heaven to be assured of his mission, but the disciples did. During the dark days that would follow, I'm sure they recalled God's voice thundering in their ears. The Father had said that Jesus would be glorified. According to Jesus, there were two reasons why a gory cross became his moment of glory. On the cross, the world was judged and Satan was cast out. In other words, on the cross, Satan was defeated. Understand this, the devil didn't want Jesus to be crucified. As a matter of fact, he did all he could to keep Jesus off of the cross. 
You remember when Satan took Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? He promised him the kingdoms of the world. What was the temptation about that? Jesus already had the kingdoms of the world promised to him. No, the temptation was you can have the kingdoms of the world without the cross. All you have to do, Satan said, is bow down and worship me. The reason Satan used Judas to betray Jesus, the reason he tried to sift Peter and the disciples like wheat, was because he wanted to discourage Jesus. The Jews didn't need Judas to arrest Jesus. They knew who he was. Judas was used by Satan to hurt Jesus, to inflict pain. Understand, our Lord was hurt by the very people he came to save. And Satan hoped the pain would cause Jesus to abort his mission. Of course, the devil's strategy failed. Jesus went to the cross and in doing so judged Satan. Colossians 2 verse 15 tells us, Jesus disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. You know, today Satan is still putting up a fight. I like to think of Satan like a guy in a gun battle who's run out of ammunition. He's now shooting blanks. He's throwing guns at you while you got bullets. His arrest is just a matter of time. This is why you should never let Satan frighten you or cast doubt or stir up guilt. James 4 verse 7 tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We need to resist the devil. He's a toothless lion now. Satan was defeated at the cross of Jesus. Stand in Jesus' victory and you'll overcome the wicked one. And the second reason the cross was seen as Jesus' moment of glory, we find here in verse 32. He says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The cross was a divine magnet that drew the hearts of people out of death and darkness to life and light. The cross is where the broken find healing. And the sinner finds forgiveness, and the guilty and bitter sense love. It's the one lighthouse in the stormy sea called life. Jesus says, lift me up upon that cross, and I'll draw all men to myself. Verse 34, the people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The Jews understood lifted up as a euphemism for the cross. But in their minds, they couldn't comprehend that the Messiah was destined to die. The Old Testament predicted that Messiah would be an everlasting king who would reign over an eternal kingdom. No, they were confused. Jesus realized that they were looking for an excuse not to believe in him. And that's why he said to them, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. And this was the last exchange Jesus would have with the crowds. From now until the end, his words will be focused on his closest followers. Here's John's verdict on the crowds. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. And he quotes Isaiah 53 verse 1, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, and here he quotes Isaiah 6 verses 9 and 10. He was blinded. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. The Jews' rejection of Jesus had been fulfilled, had been a fulfillment of the scriptures. And then verse 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved 
the praise of men more than the praise of God. What an indictment here. People believed in Jesus, but they did not confess him. Do you know anybody who believes in Jesus, but is reluctant to go on the record? Is reluctant to speak out for him? Is reluctant to confess him? What kind of insanity causes a person to forfeit the approval of Almighty God to pacify peons and to impress idiots? Of course, there are folks today who believe in Jesus but won't confess him. They fear reprisals at work or from family or by friends. You fear being put out of the in crowd or the family cluster, or the circle of friends you enjoy. When the reviews come out in the end, trust me, it will be better to get high marks in heaven than to be spoken of well in hell. Think of the regrets that some people will be forced to admit. An in with the guys. A spot in that foursome. An invite to the party. Acceptance in the club. Promotion at work. A membership in the fraternity. Popularity at the school mattered more than the praise of God. We'll cry and weep and shudder for eternity at our stupidity. And then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. This was a declaration of Jesus' deity. He and the Father were one. And then he says in verse 46, I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. In other words, deny the evidence. Ignore the obvious about Jesus. And it's not Jesus who judges you. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants to save you. It's your own rejection of him that brings judgment on yourself. He says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Chapter 13, verse 1, is one of the most amazing verses in all of the Bible. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This verse becomes more meaningful when you read it at the end of chapter 19. For by that point, all of the disciples had argued with each other about who was greatest. At that point, Peter, James, and John had fallen asleep rather than stood with Jesus in prayer. At that point, Judas will have betrayed Jesus with a kiss. At that point, Peter will have denied the Lord three times. At that point, all 12 of the disciples would have forsaken Jesus and they had fled into the night at his arrest. You see, go to the end of chapter 19 and then read these words again. He loved them to the end. The disciples let him down and they broke his heart. Jesus was forsaken by the very people he came to save. To me, the strongest proof of the deity of our Lord Jesus was not his walking on the water or multiplying the fish and chips or even busting up Lazarus' funeral. It was his love. That despite the personal hurt he endured, Jesus loved these people to the end. Only God has that kind of love. 1 Corinthians 13 describes God's agape love. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not seek its own, is not provoked, 
bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. God's people fail, but his love for them never fails. Only God has a love that never, ever quits, even in the face of people's betrayals and rejection. And this is the love with which Jesus loved his disciples during this last week. And by the way, it's still the love he shows his disciples every week. This is how he loves you and me. Your failures don't divert or dilute his love for you. For Jesus still loves his disciples to the end. Well, notice verse 2. And supper being ended. This is the Passover now. It's the night before Jesus was crucified. This supper was the Seder. And after it ended, the devil having already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, those are some pretty strong words right there, aren't they? In other words, this is high drama. Read those words. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he was from God, that he was going to God. That's like the equivalent of like a drum roll, man. What's going to happen next? His origin, his destiny are divine. He begins and ends with God. All things are given into his hands. He holds the mystery of life and the power of the atom and the forces of creation. This is an impressive set of credentials, more so than anyone else has ever possessed. The universe has become the Lord's workbench. Now what will Jesus do with such power and authority? What tool will the master use to fix this broken world? Verse 4. He rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. He chooses a towel and a bowl. Jerusalem's streets were dirty. When you entered a house, you got your feet washed. It was a courtesy. But washing footsies was a degrading job. Only the lowest slaves, the Gentile slaves, toweled toes. It was against rabbinical law to force a Jew to wash feet. Jesus' job is to fix a fallen world, to change human hearts. His resources are unlimited. We've already seen all power has been given into his hands. Now what does he do? He picks up a towel and a water bowl and he washes the dust off his disciples' feet. What a strange way to change the world. I like how one author interprets this earth-shattering event. Until that moment, the whole point of things had been for someone to get on top, and once he had gotten on top, to stay on top, or else attempt to get farther up. But this man, already on top, rabbi, teacher, master, God himself, got down on the bottom and began to wash the feet of his followers. In that one act, Jesus symbolically overturned the whole social order. Prior to this moment in history, the world was a pyramid, and the goal was to climb to the pinnacle of that pyramid. Greatness was measured by the number of people who served under you. But Jesus now flips the pyramid. Greatness in his kingdom is measured by the people you serve, not who serve you. Jesus chose to change the world by redefining its concept of greatness. Jesus climbed as low as you can go. He stripped away his right to be served. He took a towel and a bowl and became a servant and washed a bunch of dirty, smelly feet. Verse 6. Then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? In other words, no way, Jose. 
Now cross-reference this event with Luke chapter 22, and you discover that Jesus performed this foot washing, quote, after dinner. And Luke tells us that it was after dinner that a rivalry broke out among the disciples. They are arguing over who is the greatest among them. You see, usually feet were washed when the guests first entered the house. It's now after dinner, and everybody still has dirty feet. Obviously, all of the disciples were too good to wash feet. Nobody had washed anybody's feet. Now imagine, in the midst of this feud, who's the greatest among us? Jesus gets up. He takes a basin. He girds himself with a towel. And he starts washing feet. It was stunning, especially for Peter. This was so foreign to his ideas of leadership and authority and greatness. The action just didn't compute for Pete. And so he resisted. And it seems that the Lord understood. Notice what he says. Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter wasn't always a quick study, but he was sincere. He was sincere. And so here he says, well, if you have to wash me for me to be part of you, then don't stop with my feet, Lord. Wash my whole body. Peter's giving all that he is to Jesus. Will you give all that you are to Jesus? I hope you will. And then verse 10, Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. See, when a person came to a social event, he would first take a bath at the public bathhouse. And then he would walk to the party in his laced-up sandals. So by the time he arrived, his feet were dirty, but it was only his feet. The party-goer didn't need another bath. All he needed was for the street dust to be washed away. And this is the case for a Christian. Come to Jesus, man, and you get a bath. The blood of Jesus cleanses all of your sin, past, present, and future. In Christ, our inner man becomes spick and span, as clean as we can get. But outwardly, we still have to walk through this wicked world, don't we? And we can pick up some street dust, some bad attitudes, and some rough lingo, and some habits, and some disposition that get affected by our worldly associates and our surroundings. The world's negativism sticks to us. We don't need another bath, though. Our inner man has been washed once and for all by the blood of Jesus. What we need are daily and regular foot washings where we knock off the influences of this world. Jesus says to his disciples, You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, that is Judas. Therefore he said, You're not all clean. Verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. What a memorable example. Now, some Christian groups take Jesus' example here literally. And they believe that the church should observe three ordinances. Baptism, communion, and foot washing. If you've ever been to a foot washing, you know it's a very emotional experience. We've had some impromptu foot washings around here from time to time. You know, it touches your heart. It's a humbling thing. It's a, it really is a great experience. Most churches, though, maintain that only baptism and communion are to be observed by the church as official ordinances. Here's the test that we use. Was it initiated by Jesus 
Was it practiced by the early church? And was it taught in the New Testament letters? Well, baptism and communion pass all three tests. Foot washing fails on the last two. But even if foot washing was never meant to be ritualized, it should be actualized. In fact, we can wash each other's feet even if we don't have a bowl and a towel. The world beats us up. It gets us down. It defiles us and dirties us every day. Thus, when we encourage someone or speak healing words into their life, or if we laugh or cry with someone, or we refresh each other with an act of kindness, or we reinforce in another person their identity in Christ, or when we treat each other with dignity and respect, or when we build each other's faith, each time we do these things, we are in essence washing their feet. When was the last time you deliberately washed somebody's feet? Your spouse's feet, your children's feet your co-workers' feet, your boss's feet. Hey, this is how you be great in God's kingdom. You be a foot washer, aspire to wash some feet. In verse 16, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed, happy, in other words, Happy, happy, happy. That's what the word blessed means. Happy are you if you do them. Wait a minute here. Did Jesus say what I think he said? Did he actually say, if you want to be happy, you'll start washing feet? That is exactly what he said. And before you reject this idea, I want to challenge you. Has Jesus ever lied to you? Has he? Most of the time, we're miserable and unhappy anyway. Why not give it a try? What have you got to lose? Why not wash some feet? Why don't you try to put your best foot forward and wash a few feet? Verse 18. Now, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled... He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. He quotes David here in Psalm 41 verse 9. In fact, the complete verse reads, My own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. David was speaking of his counselor Ahithophel, but John sees it as prophetic of Judas. Verse 19, Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Rather than a surprise, Jesus uses Judas' betrayal to affirm his deity. He wants them to recall afterwards when this transpires, when Judas betrays him, that it was all predicted. Verse 20. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. And this is the exact moment Leonardo da Vinci immortalized in his famous painting, The Last Supper. The disciples are all around the table looking at each other with quizzical expressions on their face. Is it you? Is it it you? You know, it was a testimony of Jesus' love for Judas that the disciples didn't already know that Judas was the betrayer. Think about it. Jesus knew it was Judas from the beginning, yet he never tipped his hand. He never assigned Judas the dirty work. If it had been me, I'd have said, oh, bathroom, oh, toilet needs clean. Judas, get that brush. Go over there. I'd always have Judas doing the toilets, not Jesus. He never assigned Judas the dirty work. He was never spiteful toward him. To the contrary, he gave Judas every opportunity to repent. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, on his chest, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. This was a humble way for John to speak of himself. Simon Peter, therefore, motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Peter wants John to ask Jesus to identify the betrayer. 
Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now Jesus and his disciples were probably eating dinner at a Roman table. It was called a triclinium. The word literally means dinner bed. It sat low to the ground and it was U-shaped. The host, which on this night was Jesus, sat at the base of the U. There were no chairs, so everyone leaned or inclined on pillows. Now, since most people are right-handed, in order to free up your right hand to eat, you would lean on your left elbow. John then leaned on Jesus' shoulder, which placed him in the seat to Jesus' right. Peter spoke to John to ask about the betrayer, so he must have been next to John in the second seat to Jesus' right. And since Jesus could dip his bread in the bowl with Judas, it meant that they were probably sitting side by side, putting Judas on Jesus' left side. Seats adjacent to Jesus were positions of honor. And it was John who sat to Jesus' right, and it was Judas who sat to Jesus' left. And in the midst of the meal, the host would pay tribute to an honored guest. Do you know how? By dipping bread with him into the sauce. It was a toast of friendship and love that identified Judas as the betrayer. Jesus loved Judas. It's amazing that he toasted his friend even while Judas was plotting Jesus' betrayal. Recall verse 2, it was the devil who sparked Judas to betray Jesus. The temple guard didn't need Judas' identification. They knew Jesus. Satan moved Judas to betray Jesus. Why? In order to hurt him. In order to wound him. Imagine being betrayed by one of your best friends. The deepest cuts are always caused by people closest to us. I think Satan thought that he could use Judas to make Jesus bitter, to cause Jesus to abandon his mission. I believe Satan's goal was not to nail Jesus to the cross, but to keep Jesus off that cross. He knew it would mean the salvation of the world. And yet Jesus loved every one of his disciples to the end, even Judas, enough to die on the cross for them. Verse 27 Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. It was night in more ways than one. And so when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. The cross was Jesus' moment of glory. You see, it's at the cross of Jesus that we see man at his worst, but we see God at his best. He says, If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. The word commandment in the Latin version is the word mandatum or mandate. This is why Thursday of Passion Week is called Monday Thursday, the day of the mandate. It's the day that Jesus gave a new mandate to his disciples. And here is this new mandate, this new commandment. Jesus says that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, if you had read Leviticus 19 verse 18, you might protest. For Moses ordered Israel to love one another. So how is this a new command? Don't miss what Jesus does here. He takes an old command and he adds just five words to it that transform it into a revolutionary new concept. Here's the transforming phrase. 
as I have loved you. The Jews were expected to love, but not in the way that Jesus loved. When you love people, do you love them to the end? A friend wasn't there when you needed her. Your child betrayed you. Your parent ignored you. A spouse let you down. A co-worker refused to stand up for you in a pinch. Have you stopped loving them? Or are you determined to love like Jesus loves and love them to the end? Verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Note the identifying mark of a Christian is not his leather-bound Bible or his witness t-shirts or the aluminum fish on his bumper of his car. What distinguishes a Christian is not even his Bible knowledge or theology or expertise in apologetics. It's not his church involvement or his acts of service or his ability to sing. It's not how he walks or talks or looks. Friends, it is how he loves. Do you love the way Jesus loves? Michael Card writes, The only distinguishing mark of the disciples ever given in Scripture is their ability to love. In 200 AD, the early church leader, Tertullian, he noted how the pagans viewed Christians with such astonishment. He said they would say, See how they love one another? That's what they noticed. And the distinctive attraction hasn't changed. They'll know we're Christians by our love for one another. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. And of course, Jesus spoke of the cross. And it's interesting, church history tells us that in 65 AD, Peter was martyred for his faith. He was sentenced to crucifixion. But, but he, he so considered himself unworthy to be crucified like his Lord, so much so that he had them turn the cross upside down. Peter was crucified, but on an upside down cross. And here Jesus predicts Peter will follow him in death, death on the cross. But that was not what was on Peter's mind at the moment. For Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. When Peter is finally crucified, he will be full of the Holy Spirit. But at this point in his life, he's full of it, so to speak. Full of hubris, full of chutzpah, full of self-confidence. Not the Holy Spirit, not yet. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus might have put his best foot forward, but sadly not Peter. He's headed for a crushing defeat. Yet as with all the disciples, Jesus will love Peter to the end.